0: Hello, this is Tanya Domi. Welcome to the Thought Project, recorded at the CUNY Graduate Center. In this space, we talk with faculty and doctoral students about the big thinking and big ideas generating groundbreaking research, assisting New Yorkers, and informing the world. The Venezuelan Colombia migrant crisis refers to a diplomatic and humanitarian crisis that occurred in mid 2015 following the shooting of three Venezuelan soldiers on the Venezuelan Colombian border that left them injured. Venezuelan President Nicolas Madero's response, declaring a state of emergency, closing the border to Colombia indefinitely, and deporting thousands of Colombians who live near the border struck fear in thousands of other Colombians living within Venezuela, resulting in mass immigration from the country and creating a crisis involving separated families and Colombians who sought emergency shelter and food. Decisions and actions carried out by President Maduro were questioned by human rights groups, the United Nations, the European Union, and the United States. Because of a growing economic crisis during the Madero government, it developed into a recession, creating shortages that worsened, and the inflation rate rose to the highest in Venezuelan history, exceeding 100%. Lawlessness dominated near the border and smugglers were able to traffic commodities out of the country. But Colombians did not play a major role in this phenomenon. Rather, as reported by the Washington Post at the time, it was the policies of the Madero government and its corrupted army officers. Today's guest is PhD student Andres Besser Reyes has become completely immersed in this contemporary history through a research project led by Graduate Center sociologist Robert Courtney Smith, along with several other co-authors here at the Graduate Center and on the ground in Colombia. Andres Bessera Reyes is pursuing his PhD in political science at the CUNY Graduate Center. His dissertation research focuses on a comparative study of Colombian and U.S. immigration regimes and the effects that distinct forms of regulation have on immigrant life trajectories. He has published research on COVID-19's impact on immigrant communities in the United States, Mexican overseas enfranchisement, and the importance of legal driving for immigrants in New York State, among other research. Andres was a graduate teaching fellow at City College, where he taught world politics, politics of immigration, and political systems of Latin America. He holds a master's degree in democracy and comparative politics from University College London and a bachelor's in international relations from El Caliglia de Mexico. Before graduate school, Andres worked as a policy research advisor in Mexico's National Electoral Institute. He currently co-hosts The Ballot Box, a podcast covering elections around the world. Welcome to The Thought Project, Andreas Bessinger Reyes.
1: Hi, thanks for the invitation.
0: You have been involved in research and advocacy in your Ph.D. project, and I want our listeners to know it's a little long, the title. However, it is entitled Canceled Citizenship, Stolen Rights, multi-dimensional and preventable harm caused by arbitrary deprivation of nationality through the annulment of civil registry and the cancellation of citizen identity cards in Colombia, the country. How did you become interested in developing this into a PhD research project? And you have several co-authors, including our esteemed colleague, Robert Courtney Smith, who's also a really good friend and has been on this program. And through your work with him, applied uh, not only his analysis, and he also served as an advisor, but you used the principles and methods of public sociology. Who else joined in this project?
1: Okay, so thank you for the question. This project is actually, it's a kind of a spinoff from my dissertation project. So the dissertation, it's a comparison between Colombian and U.S. immigration regimes, essentially how both countries both document and undocument their immigrant population. It's a study of how Colombia, which received about 5% of its population over five years, created one of the most interesting world experiments in basically providing a route to documentation for all of the Venezuelans who arrived in its territory, while the United States has blocked access to documentation, except for a narrow portion of immigrants who are already here. Within that larger project, Mm -hmm. um, as I was doing pre-dissertation fieldwork in Colombia and working with five... Colombian legal non-profits who specialize in the human rights protection of people in mobility or in transit, so migrants, I discovered that there was a curious case of 40,000 binational Venezuelan Colombians who had been suddenly stripped of their citizenship without them knowing about it. And these lawyers were following several of the cases, and they were actively trying to begin strategic litigation, both at the regional and at the court level. So I met them through my fieldwork. And I realized that there was an opportunity to employ the tools of public sociology and some of the theoretical and methodological tools that I had learned through my Ph.D. program here at the Graduate Center that could assist the lawyers and the nonprofits in their strategic litigation. So
0: you you saw that and you acted on that.
1: That's right. Yeah. Um, and so- not
0: everybody would act. I just want to say that. So I compliment you because we're talking about the lives of a lot of people who've just been completely turned upside down.
1: Yeah, that's right. Thank you. I mean, so C. Wright Mills, the famous American sociologist, talks about the sociological imagination, which is the sort of the way that people in the field or um, researchers who are looking at individual cases of Injustice or inequality can abstract to kind of more systemic understanding of what's going on. And I think people who are educated in fieldwork and in ethnography and who have a sort of ethos of the use of knowledge for the public good in the field might notice um, that there's actually an intervention that can be done using social sciences in order to improve people's lives.
0: Well, this is a great example, and we are going to promote this a great deal. And I think the sociology and political science programs should be very pleased with the work that you've done here. But this became like a group project. So tell me about some of your colleagues that joined.
1: Sure. So I was working with the the legal nonprofits in Colombia to understand processes of documentation and undocumentation in that country you know in my conversations with them i learned about the case of people being stripped of their citizenship and i first started collaborating with a lawyer at the universidad rosario which is a, a pretty large uh, university in bogota she used to run the legal clinic for it was it was a free legal legal clinic for people who had migration issues and then she invited some of her colleagues people who were running other legal clinics and i reached out to a couple of other organizations in bogota to see if they also had cases of people who had been stripped of their citizenship. And they did. So these are a group of quite young, uh, really motivated, incredibly brilliant, and committed human rights lawyers in Colombia. And they're in Colombia. They're all in Colombia. They're all in Bogota. One of the interesting things about a country like Colombia, which is partially why I'm studying it for my PhD dissertation, is that it only had 50,000 registered foreigners in 2015, and it now has over 2.7 million foreigners. So it didn't really have much of a, a corpus of laws and practices around immigration law. So the lawyers I cooperated with are in a way at the forefront of creating the legal infrastructure that will govern immigration, and
0: probably this will produce jurisprudence that's going to shape the future of migration.
1: Correct. That's our hope that you know eventually courts in Colombia will make it much harder for people to be stripped of their citizenship, especially that they won't get stripped in the way that they were um, in this in this case.
0: So, just for our listeners to know, um, and I you know I read your executive summary, obviously that. There were 980,000 people from Colombia that had returned from Venezuela. And they had been living in Venezuela. And as you said in your opening remarks, that 40,000 people were denationalized. Correct? Correct. So... I think this is a really good point where you should explain to our listeners, explain the context of why so many Colombians were living in Venezuela and this phenomenon of in particular, as your report indicates, that these binational couples were really targeted by the Colombian government through their register and denationalizing them.
1: So Colombia is traditionally a country of emigration, so far more Colombians have left the territory for other countries, then foreigners have gone to live into Colombia. It's gone through a really interesting transformation where now it's a country of immigration as well, and not only a country of emigration. So it shares a long border with Venezuela. And Venezuela was one of the most prosperous countries in South America, while Colombia lived through a very extended period of very bloody civil conflict yes. and economic decline. And so since around the end of the Second World War to the 1990s and even into the early 2000s, many Colombians left, most of them forcibly displaced by violence or by dire economic need to many countries in the world, chief among which was Venezuela. It was a relatively prosperous country. Colombians settled in Venezuela. There was a long or medium term migration of Colombians into Venezuela and either them or their children who are Colombian citizens by the Colombian constitution and have full rights as Colombian citizens. Many of them then began to return from Venezuela to Colombia as Venezuela experienced multi-level crisis, both economic and political, political yes. right, in terms of security. So many Venezuelans have moved out of Venezuela. There's around 7 million emigrants of Venezuelan nationality. Nationality, wow. One million of which were dual nationals of Colombia and Venezuela, right? Or they had a claim to that.
0: Yeah, it's very uh, close,
1: yes. Exactly. So since 2016, about, as as you said, about close to a million binationals have returned to Colombia and have either gotten their, their citizenship papers or they already had them when they were there. Now, the national registrar It's an independent agency. It doesn't depend on any of the, the, you know, the three classical powers of the executive, the legislative, or the judicial branch. It's an
0: administrative agency.
1: Correct. But that
0: has legal force, obviously.
1: It does. It does. It's a very powerful agency, and it's in charge of civil registries and also of the upkeeping of the national identity card in Colombia, which is a really important document. Unlike the United States, Colombia has a unified identity policy, so everyone over the age of 16, gets an identity card. Gets a card, right? Correct. Right. That's right.
0: right. This is similarly practiced in Europe, in many European countries.
1: That's right. Yeah, it's very similar to other European countries' um, identity policy. Yes. And if you're a Colombian citizen, you can obtain that card. One of the interesting things about the Colombian state in general is that it adapted to receiving a lot of immigrants from Venezuela. And it made several of the kind of bureaucratic red tape slightly more flexible for them. Among these decisions was the registrar's decision to allow for people to apply or to activate their Colombian citizenship through the presentation of two witnesses instead of getting a notarized birth certificate. So Colombian citizens who were born in Venezuela or who had resided there for a long time in Colombia could present their birth certificate and two witnesses. And that was completely legal. Although that policy ended in 2021,
0: when this return happened.
1: Right. The return had already happened. Okay. And that, that was a kind of measure. And the
0: processing. Exactly. Processing.
1: Then the registrar began a very odd policy of reviewing people who had sought Colombian citizenship or who had registered for Colombian citizenship at least 30 days after they were born. So these are technically called extemporaneous naturalization processes or extemporaneous registration. So basically that you weren't registered at the time of your birth. And that could happen because you were born in another country. In a third country. country Of Colombian parents, right? Right. But obviously, you know, what this did was it would actually put in in the registrar's kind of crosshairs people who were part of this return migration, this wave of return migration. Now, there were several legal flaws to the ways in which the registrar then proceeded to strip people of their nationality to deprive them of their nationality in such a way that in the report, we characterize it, along with other civil society who studied this in Colombia, as an arbitrary form of deprivation of nationality, which is a really serious process.
0: So, indeed, your your report found that there were a number of legal violations, including due process. And that's what you're pointing out right now.
1: Correct. That's it. That's the most egregious of all the, the faults. In and,
0: and these procedure. are quite arbitrary. And they ignored, right, many of the people that presented to witnesses, Then they stopped acknowledging that criteria, and they just sort of ignored it. They dismissed it, correct?
1: That's right. So one of the main issues is that the legal document on which people lost their nationality was not individualized. So, you know, Due process rights would require for the administrative authority to issue a written statement per person who lost their nationality so that they could detail the reasons why that person had some sort of issue with the registrar.
0: And and your report found that these were very large files, like up to 400 people would be in a single case. Like, that is crazy.
1: It's absolutely wrong that that would happen. And and
0: It's, it's legally incorrect.
1: Absolutely. Totally. Because it, it it disempowers citizens from understanding what was wrong with their file, if anything was actually wrong with it to begin with. That was one of the major flaws. The other one was that citizens didn't receive notifications of the beginning of this procedure. They weren't even aware that there was something apparently wrong with the filing of their of their citizenship papers. They were just doing
0: what they thought they
1: should do. Exactly. They were going about their lives. And in fact, through the research for the report, what we found is a lot of people learned that they had issues in the worst way possible, which is when they um, had a kind of rudinary interaction with the police. The police took their identity card, scanned the number or the barcode, and then you know took them to, to prison right, for they identity. Flagged them, they flagged them they were in flagged, the system. Right. They were flagged for identity fraud, and they spent up to 36 hours in jail awaiting a judge that in in all of the cases where we interviewed people the judge never showed up so they were let go after 36 hours which is in compliance with with colombian law the interviews are were very they're really shocking because it felt really like you know kafka was live in in bogota in 20 in the 21st century people go about their day they don't think anything's wrong with them and then a very normal interaction with the police because in colombia there's a weird practice where especially men get stopped by the police it's kind of like Stop and frisk. It's still going on.
0: Columbia style.
1: Columbia style.
0: So I just want to ask you, I mean, we'll get into these cases, but I wanted to ask you, it's very clear that the government was targeting these binational couples. Why do you think they did this? Because they had an opportunity to keep people out or they chose to target the binational people because they didn't want them? And, you know, you point out how it became so arbitrary, but clearly somebody in the government made a decision that we're going to do this.
1: First of all, I would say it was not the executive branch. So the president at the time and, you know, his advisors and his ministries weren't involved in this. It was the registrar and the registrar's office. So they just,
0: they acted... Independently of the government,
1: right? They have a degree of independence from the government, which That's is significant. St- yeah, That's, yeah, it's, it's, it's
0: quite significant.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's an administrative structure. It's a legal structure that should isolate the registrar from political motivations, but should also make it more accountable. The ironic thing here was that it was made less accountable because of this um, autonomy that it has within the Colombian constitutional structure. We're not sure why. Why they decide what went on behind this decision, there were a few reports and a few uh, very unfortunate public statements by the registrar in his office suggesting that the registrar had knowledge of uh, fraud having been committed in the filing for a Colombian citizenship at a large scale. But these claims were actually not based on evidence or on a study or on a report. They seem to have been based on hearsay that then somehow reached the registrar's office and at least, you know, that was the kind of public motivation in some, in some statements. It's yet to kind of fully understand what the decision process was and what the motivation was. But from the point of view of people who we interviewed who lost their citizenship, they definitely feel themselves to be the target of, of xenophobia and of discrimination. And it'll be very hard to convince people who underwent this travesty. To the contrary, it adds on to a degree of xenophobia that Venezuelans face in Colombia, I wouldn't say every it's day. Every day, exactly. Yeah.
0: So what's interesting is, as you point out, these um, arbitrary actions by the registrar really opened the door to legal action after lawyers began talking to people. And in your methods of developing case studies, which I'm interested in, and that that comes out of public uh, sociology these individuals that you you all interviewed and you also interviewed five lawyers representing some of them, can you describe the case of Ignacio, which your report flags as maybe a good example of how annulment of citizenship harmed individuals and that this harm happened in multi-dimensional ways. So could you tell Ignacio's story?
1: Sure. Ignacio is as someone I interviewed for, for the report. Ignacio, by the way, not his real name; it's a pseudonym sure. we use pseudonyms throughout the report in order to that makes sense to to protect their identity of and, course. and their well-being. So Ignacio was going to work one day in January of 2022 when he was uh, stopped by the police in a very routine stop. As I told you, there's this kind of unfortunate stop and frisk policy that has passed constitutional tests in Colombia for some reason. You know, it's still there; it's normal. That this has happened many, many times. There had never been any issue. But this time, the police told him that he had committed identity fraud, that he had been flagged for identity fraud and was in the system. He was totally puzzled by this, scared. He wasn't sure what was going on. He was taken to a prison where he was handcuffed for 36 hours without proper food and water. He was also the victim of xenophobic uh, harassment in prison when, you know, a, a police officer said, you know, oh, you Venezuelans, you only come here to commit crimes. Although, you know, he had committed no crime. He, and he's, he was, you know, he's a binational Venezuelan-Colombian. Right, right. His father had actually left Colombia because of the violence that the father had experienced. Then after 36 hours of being handcuffed, he was let go because the judge never showed up. And a few weeks later, his boss called him in to tell him that he had a, an issue, which is that he no longer appeared in the social security role. Because, again, he he had been flagged because of this, so they, this process.
0: So they removed him from Social Security.
1: They removed him from Social Security. He lost his health insurance, and then a few days later, his boss told him that he could no longer work there. He lost his job. He still wasn't sure why, what was going on. He started to have to use his his savings in order to pay for food and rent for him and his family. He describes undergoing food insecurity in both his uh. Partner and uh, their daughter also underwent food insecurity because there wasn't enough money to to put, you know, n- enough calories on the table. He would eventually reach one of the legal nonprofits and discover his citizenship had been stripped. Revoked. so he, his nationality had been correct had been revoked. He couldn't vote in 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 that year's elections. And it was a lengthy process, but he would eventually recover his nationality because, The lawyers um, submitted a protection of rights to a judge, which is basically a procedure where an individual can demonstrate that their human rights have been violated. This process doesn't have what's called erges omnes effects. So it doesn't, even cases that are identical to this one, cannot be resolved by this uh, ruling. It's an individual ruling. So he So it
0: doesn't apply across the board to individuals that may have experienced similar consequences and outcomes.
1: That's right. Exactly. The legal nonprofit, which was the University of Rosario, which is a co-author of the report, eventually, you know, helped him recover his his nationality. And once he recovered it, it took him a while to get a job again, but he eventually did manage to to get a job. He remains very scared of the police and interactions with the authority. It's fair to say that there was a degree of trauma in his interaction.
0: So we're talking about perhaps PTSD.
1: And, you know, very clear feelings of disempowerment. He felt totally disempowered, powerless. And, uh, you know, he described a sense of incredible insecurity after having lost uh, one's nationality. I, I sometimes, I mean, while doing this report, I came to think of nationality and citizenship as, you know, something that we kind of, as a non-American who's come to the United States, I don't take it for granted. But it's easy to take lots of these rights for granted. Um, and
0: not think about it.
1: And not think about it. But when they're gone, it's like someone has pulled, you know, the floor beneath your feet. You're in you're in a sort of freefall state in terms of rights and your relationship to authority. Your capacity to do so many things gets stymied. Even renting an apartment, apartment. would become, you know, impossible without an identity card that worked.
0: That's right. So this is all headed to the Colombian courts and even further afield to the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. Why don't you tell us about you know, where some of these cases are and what the legal strategy is here overall?
1: So the participant organizations realized that they could continue the strategy of protecting individual people who had been deprived of their nationality, but that that would never reach the 40,000 people whom we know have been stripped of their citizenship. So in order to right this wrong, they needed to scale it up to a kind of strategic litigation strategy whereby either regionally and or nationally, there would be a decision that could revert the stripping of citizenship.
0: And make these people whole.
1: Correct. Exactly. Right. They've asked uh, the Inter-American Human Rights Commission for... A decision? Not a decision, audiencia, which in English is a a hearing. A hearing, of course. There is a hearing. So there
0: hasn't been a hearing yet.
1: There's already been a hearing. Okay. The report was used to demonstrate the harms that... uh, Your report. Your report report, was
0: used as evidence in this hearing. Correct. Bravo. Right. Bravo. Thank Bravo. you. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Thank that you. is really, really yeah. a credit to all of you.
1: Thank you. And it's going to be used in the Constitutional Court, which is the equivalent of the Supreme Court in Colombia. At least two cases that have now been selected from among many cases that, that could be selected for a ruling. This ruling might not be definitive. It depends on whether or not the Supreme Court kind of connects these dots. So if it's not in this case, maybe in in subsequent cases that the the legal nonprofits have already submitted to the Supreme Court.
0: And they're making the case for a connection.
1: Right. They're making a case for the connection. So they
0: have to convince the court of the merits of their argument,
1: obviously. Correct. That's right. And one of the wonderful things about um, the process of crafting this report was that I learned the relative strengths that social scientists have. When it comes to making legal arguments and assisting human rights organizations, the lawyers who were trained in law could identify due process violations and faulty due process practices. Pra- thank you practices. Sure. very, very easily. That, that's what they were trained to do. And you know, it came naturally to them. What they did not see was that this was not only an, an issue of the legal process whereby people were stripped of citizenship, it was also about the effects that this had on and, yes. individuals and families and, and their
0: and their lives and their so tell our audience like what you did find and how people were harmed in all the ways that you describe in the report
1: sure i ended up coming up with the concept of multidimensional and preventable harm in order to encapsulate all of the effects that losing one's nationality has when one loses it suddenly why multidimensional because it affected individual people on multiple levels economic psychological in their relationship to authority it also had spillover effects so it affected not only the individual but also their family their underage dependents their children and their their spouses their partners and it was preventable because we know that had the registrar followed its own rules that you know force should should force it to follow due process procedures Probably most, if not all of these people would never have lost their Colombian nationality. So, you know, it's totally preventable. It was a harm that didn't serve any purpose. What are the dimensions of this harm? So one of them is uh, a harm to their right to an identity. So they no longer had a gateway right, which is your capacity to identify yourself. Yeah, they're essentially
0: undocumented
1: at that point. Exactly. And, And where did this show up? People could not vote in elections, which is you know a terrible violation of of political rights. People could not access their bank accounts because they had no way of proving that they were themselves. That they right? They were a citizen. They couldn't travel, so a lot of people were either scared or were denied, for example, using planes. So that you know that's right, that's a huge issue. Because they couldn't issue. get on a plane. Right. They were they were turned immobile through having had their identity uh, card cancelled. There was economic harm because people lost jobs. They especially lost jobs with benefits because they were expelled into the informal labor market in Colombia, which as you as you might you know um, know, has no uh, health benefits, no vacations, oftentimes no weekends. They're paid much less, right? Um, they had to dip into savings, which then, for many people, involved canceling plans. We have the case of Francisco who was saving up to start a bakery so that he could work less hours at his job, spend more time with his family, have a little family business. His wife is a very talented baker, but they had to dip into those savings once he lost his nationality and then his job, and those plans were ruined. He lost basically all of the savings that he had accumulated over five years oh, in order to start a, a bakery. Yeah, There was a psychological harm. People were, especially those who who had interactions with the police for but any fraud, but also, for example, the case of Adriana and and her husband, her husband was taken to the emergency room with what seemed like a heart attack, but was then diagnosed as just, you know, a lot of stress because of the shock of having lost one's nationality.
0: That kind of stress leads to, yields to lots of different kinds of illnesses.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I also used some of the theoretical lenses that I developed over, you know, my dissertation project and and that have been developed by others, great social scientists such as Menkibar and Laura Enriquez, to talk about legal violence, which is disempowerment of the individual vis-a-vis the system, this feeling that, you know, first the confusion that surrounds losing one's status, unexpectedly so, and then also the notion of spillover effects and multi-generational punishment. Right, so a lot of our interviewees felt that they were being punished simply from having returned from Venezuela into Colombia. They feel like second class citizens, right, in lots of ways, and that 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 harms their capacity for integration and
0: back into society
1: correct, correct,
0: yes, as you said, multi dimensional, but also really it's like uh. The registrar had a sledgehammer, and every single person returning was a nail. And really, really terrible outcomes for these people. Would it be beyond the Colombian courts to order, like, remuneration, reparative justice here?
1: That's a really good question. In the report's recommendations, we do recommend that the constitutional court Seek reparations for the people who who were undo, you know, unfairly stripped of their nationality. I'm not sure if that is something that the Inter-American Human Rights Commission or the court could do the Inter-american uh, Human Rights Court. But it might be sadly, this is not the only case of arbitrary and mass deprivation of nationality in the Americas. I think maybe some listeners might be familiar with the case of Dominican Republics, a Dominican Republic, whereby, Descendants of Haitians were retrospectively stripped of their nationality en masse by, you know, having been Dominicans for many generations. And in there, the inter-American human rights system was activated and was very effective. It was crucial for the protection of, of, of those people. In, well, that certainly in Dominican could be
0: Republic. an example in the human rights system that might apply given their previous decision on the Haitians. Yeah. Very interesting. Great project, great leverage of public uh, research and for the public good on the behalf of yourself and uh, Professor Smith and the people you know here at the Graduate Center and with your colleagues on the ground in Columbia. We are so grateful to have you here today.
1: Well, thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about this report and its crafting. This is definitely, I think, I'm a product of the Graduate Center and of the CUNY system of two departments, uh, of the Department of Political Science, where I learned so much and, you know, where I have very close relationships. And also the Department of Sociology through through the work with, with Robert right, Smith. Right,
0: with Robert Smith. Um,
1: I was reminded of the graduate center's call and CUNY's call for knowledge for the public good repeatedly throughout the crafting of the report and and it's an ethos that I hold very dear it was it was a privilege to be able to you know make use of it in in a real world situation
0: well that's really wonderful and I would add to just as an american that Yes, we have definite problems in the United States on immigration. All kinds of terrible things have gone on at the border. People are talking about this crisis, which I think is really trumped up. Excuse that expression. But um, I think it's trumped up. And now we're hearing about what's happened in Colombia and Venezuela. And I'm sure most Americans have no clue about what has transpired there and that there are a lot of immigration problems south of the border.
1: Yes. And, you know, but there's also an incredible example to be had. So even though the case of 40,000 people who were stripped of their citizenship in Colombia is awful, and, and you know, we we need to focus on, on the negative aspects of, of that decision, Colombia overall also provides a positive example of what can be done In a larger sense, because it it allowed for the documentation of most all Venezuelans in their territory, you know, Colombia has been able to integrate many, many immigrants into its Uh, formal economy. Many
0: different countries. I want to thank you so much, Andreas Dasingar Reyes, for joining us today at the Thought Project.
1: Thank you for the opportunity. It was amazing.
0: Thanks for tuning in to The Thought Project, and thanks to our guest, Andreas Bessinger-Reyes, a Ph.D. student in political science at the CUNY Graduate Center. The Thought Project is brought to you with production, engineering, and technical assistance by audio engineer Kevin Wolf and CUNY TV. I'm Tanya Domi. Tune in next week.